0: Hi everyone, awesome. thank you very much for coming. I'm delighted to welcome Holly Lawford-Smith from the University of Melbourne uh, who's going to talk to us about collective culpability and collective punishment. Awesome, thank you very much for having me and for showing up so late in the day, um, much appreciated. So um, the, more, uh, the more fun title which I think the paper will have but the talk you have to give it a year in advance, so it has the more boring descriptive title. It's going to be What's Wrong with Collective Punishment, which gives you a bit more of a hint to um, the question and the answer. Um, (laughs) Answer, nothing in principle. So that's what I'm going to try and and defend here. And I'm assuming a certain sort of skepticism on your part. Uh, I don't know if that's warranted, um, but that's the way that I'm going to proceed. So um, I'm going to try and do four things in the next let's say 50 or so minutes, uh, I'm going to introduce a case that I'll use throughout the um, throughout the talk that we can just sort of pin the discussion on. Um, I'll deal with at least one early objection, um, and then I'll give you a proposal for how sorry, um, for how we should distribute, <laughs> I'm used to coming out, so I'm trying to stay, to stay put. Um, I'll give you at least one proposal for how I think the distribution of collective punishment from collectives to their members should go. Uh, And then I'll just talk a little bit about the application of this here in the UK to the joint enterprise sentencing. And then we'll be done. Okay, so um, this is an actual case which many of you are probably familiar with, although I'm going to stylize small elements of it to suit my argument. Uh, So this is the case of um, the murder of Stephen Lawrence, which happened in 1993 in Altham, London. Uh, the murder was um, committed by a gang I'm going to call them the gang as we go on which will become clear later on why I need to because they kind of need a name so I can refer to the, the blob, the group rather than the, the individual members don't worry, that will all make more sense soon um, I just put their names here to shame them really so these were the actual uh, the actual youths at the time, men now so Neil and James Acourt who were brothers Gary Dobson, David Norris and Luke Knight um so Dwayne Brooks and Stephen Lawrence were just waiting at a bus stop for their bus. This gang of um, uh, white boys at the time came along, shouting uh, racist abuse. One was carrying a bat and one was carrying a knife. They assaulted Stephen Lawrence. Um, one person assaulted him with the bat. The other stabbed him twice, in the neck, which hit an artery. And then Lawrence later um, died uh, from his wounds. And the gang ran away. The next day, there was an anonymous note left in a phone box, which identified a phone box, which identified four out of five of the boys, um, and then later on, the Daily Mail printed as its headline uh, the, the names of all five of them, accusing them of being murderers and saying, "If we're wrong, let them sue us." So um, we know who the five are. Okay. I think um, obviously it's a kind of open question exactly what relation these five boys at the time stood into one another. So um, that is to say it's an open question whether these five counted as a collective agent in the sense that people working in social ontology are interested in, what sort of um, uh, relations they stood into one another. So there are various accounts of collective agency on offer. Um, some run in terms of the group having um, a formalized decision-making procedure. Some run in terms of them having the right sorts of interlocking intentions between themselves about what they do. Some require the ability to form beliefs, make judgments, form intentions and act on them. Um, they might require persistence or even rationality over time. So it's going to depend who is your go-to guy on collective agency, exactly what you, whether you think this group counts. Um, I'm going to assume for the discussion going forward um, simply that they, they did meet one of the plausible sets of conditions for collective agency, uh, and then talk on that basis about what that implies in terms of um, collective culpability, but in particular, collective punishment. Okay, so there are two ways of talking about um, culpability. Causation, uh, and then I think the punishment that attaches to culpability. And I think this will be the more familiar way. This is the way that's dominating just war theory at the moment, for example, and the way that I think dominates the legal system. Oh, sorry, I should also say this is the stylized element. Assume along with me that it that the bat assault and the knife assault were jointly sufficient for the death of Stephen Lawrence. It just makes the case more difficult and interesting. It might turn out that the real case was. That the stabbing was um, alone sufficient for the death, and then it's less interesting. So I'm just assuming um, that the actions of the group were jointly sufficient to bring about the death. Okay, so on the individualist analysis, um, we just figure out what the causal contributions of each boy were. So, and I've, I've picked these guys out arbitrarily, I can't find anywhere in the media that we know. But these two, um, Gary Dobson and Daniel. Daniel, David, Det. Norris, um, these are the two that ended up going to jail. There was a very protracted, say, almost 20-year proceedings in which lots of mistakes were made, but these two ended up going to jail under joint uh, joint enterprise um, sentencing. So I'm assuming that they did the worst stuff, even though that might be false. So just imagine this guy um, had the knife, this guy, Norris, had the bat, and then these three were yelling racist abuse, and they acted as accomplices. So on the individualist analysis, we just look at the causal contribution of each boy, and then we determine culpability, um, uh, whether they were excused, um, punishment, and so on after that. On the collectivist story, when the five meet plausible conditions for a collective agency, we can look at what the group itself has done, or has c- caused. And so, in that case, I think, with my assumption about um, uh, the two uh, assaults being jointly sufficient, we get a murder. Okay. Um, good. So supposing that this group was not excused in any way, so it wasn't um, defending itself, uh, or it wasn't in a moment of temporary insanity, or however else we think individuals can be excused, that might pass along to groups, Um, then we would think this group is culpable for what it has done, and we might think uh, we want to talk about how that group can be punished for what it has done. But for some reason, Uh, people tend to really balk at this conclusion. So um, it seems to me, maybe just anecdotally from what I read in the news and from people that I talk to, that people are really not on board with the idea of collective punishment. Um, So there's a sort of initial resistance to the idea, uh, which may be because of certain bad cases, which I'll talk about soon. Um, There have been grassroots organisations that have sprung up to protest collective punishment, so the biggest almost most prominent group in the UK has the acronym J-E-N-G-B-A, um, which is Joint Enterprise Not Guilty by Association, and then they're protesting exactly these kinds of cases, even though joint enterprise sentencing was, was what allowed us to um, convict at least two of these five um, members. So I think there's a payoff from arguing um, in the collectivist spirit rather than just the individualist spirit. The first thing to notice is just that you get a different kind of story. Um, So in the individualist story, with my assumptions, it might be the case that these actions add up to the same thing. So it might be that once you add just completely arbitrary numbers, but just imagine how bad it is to do a knife assault is like 70% badness of a murder but then also with the bat, that's another 20%, and then you get 10% out of the racist abuse added together. It's silly to try to put it in numbers, but just imagine you get roughly the same amount of culpability, responsibility, punishability um, as you would get here. But there's still different stories. Here you have culpability for a murder, and here you just have these added up bits. It was really bad to do a knife assault, and really bad to do a bat assault, and really bad to do um, racist hate So we get a different story, and I think it's worth having that story on the table and then talking about whether we want it, what might be wrong with going that way, and so on. But I think the thing that excites people working in social ontology about the collectivist story is that it can give us a better story in at least some cases. The better story is in cases where there are gaps. So there are two kinds of cases like this. One is um, when the individual causal contributions made by members of the group are morally permissible so it can turn out that there are things that individuals do that are individually morally permissible but they come together in a way that adds up to harm at the collective level or injustice or wrong or whatever you're interested in so if you have a collectivist story and you have the right sorts of relations between your members you can get culpability in those cases where you otherwise couldn't And that's also going to be true in cases where it's not that the individual actions were permissible, it's not something like maybe emitting carbon might be, Um, but where they're not, where what they add up to taken together, even though they're wrong, isn't the extent of the culpability you would get out of the collective. So imagine this stuff just didn't add up. You get a knife assault and a bat assault, but they're pretty low culpability, And then there's a gap between what you get there and what you would have gotten if you had the collective on the hook. So the weaker rationale is that you get a different story and we should be interested in that story. The stronger rationale is that you might actually be able to solve some of the culpability gaps. You cannot always solve them. So I've argued a bit in previous work against people that try to take this move too far. So then they think you can use this now on all of global poverty and all of climate change because like humanity is a group. Okay, that's not the kind of group we have in mind. Just to reiterate, these are collective agents in the sense that social ontologists are interested in. So take some plausible account of collective agency um, that's going to pick out usually small scale, highly intentional, usually voluntary groups. But there's a question about the extent to which those conditions scale. So whether we can get some big... Um, groups on the hook. And some people think we can. Some people think you can get corporations. Um, some people even think you can get states. It doesn't usually go far beyond that, though. Okay. Good. There's a lot of minutes just saying why you should listen. Um, okay. Now, um, as I said, I'm just going to be trying to persuade you that there's nothing in principle wrong with collective punishment. And what I want to do first is just kind of um, at least set the pejorative sense of collective punishment aside. Um, So some of you might have seen this film that came out with BBC One, I think a couple of years ago, called Common. So this film is like a piece of Whatever is not propaganda, but is highly political, right? So it's like really trying to get you to not like joint enterprise sentencing. So it tells the story um, of John Joe, this character here, um, who gets caught up, uh, wrongfully actually caught up in a joint enterprise sentencing uh, case. So there, in fact, is something like the gang that we've been interested in. John Joe is the brother of one of the members of the gang. So the gang has beef with someone, and they're going to this pizza parlor to sort it out. They ring the brother, he's not available, so they ring Jonjo, whose number they have, for whatever reason. So he ends up going along, he thinks he's just driving them to the pizza parlor. He's so naive that he tells them what kind of pizza he wants. Then they go in, and they're beating up this guy that they have a problem with, and in the process, one of the members of the group, Knife... Knives? Knives? (laughs) Um, Someone else in the shop, he doesn't like how they're looking at him. So it's a kind of completely arbitrary crime that happens in the commission of the original crime to which they had agreed. And then the, the movie is just telling the story of how John Joe ends up being on the hook with the rest of the members of the gang for this murder that happened in the commission um, uh, of the initial assault. And then, of course, you're feeling, oh, that's terrible, like poor John Joe, He's going to end up being punished for something that someone else did, this member of the gang who was entirely unpredictable and just happened to be carrying a knife um, how could John Joe have known, and so on. So I think there is this kind of miscarriage of justice um, worry with collective punishment, of course. And then there's the wrong kinds of groups worry. There's the, um, you know, the discussion of collective punishment in the sense of um, what Israel is doing to Palestine, for example. Uh, or if a family um, claimed to have been shamed because their daughter has uh, premarital sex, for example, and then the family has to pay some price those cases, again, are not, those are not the kinds of groups that um, social ontologists are going to be interested in. So families merely in virtue of being families, communities, um, I actually think nations as well in the sense of the citizenry taken together, none of those groups are going to count as collective agents. They're not going to meet the, um, the strong conditions. And I think there's two things to say about the John Do case. One is just that there can be miscarriages of justice. Okay, that's not a reason to think that the the law necessarily gets things wrong or that, in principle, we shouldn't be interested in collective punishment. And I think maybe it's useful to make these distinctions. So the thing that I agree is wrong would be to punish one individual for what another individual has done, like punishing the brother for what the sister did. Um, But that's just not the same thing as these two. So punishing three people together for what they together did Or in the case that the three are legal persons, just give them a name. Um, I just call them Letters Inc. So imagine you punish X, Y, and Z for what Letters Inc, which is their formally incorporated title, um, have done. I just think those two cases are not at all the same as punishing one for what the other has done. And so long as you can agree with that, um, I think we're still in the game of talking about collective punishment. OK. I'm going to skip a little and come back uh, yeah so just so we're all on the same page about the kind of thing I have in mind when I'm talking about punishment these are just the paradigmatic ways that we punish individuals um, so death not so popular mainly in the US um, but we some countries uh, do do use that Paradigmatically, I think jail time. So that, I think, is the, the standard punishment uh, in, li- in liberal countries. But there's also all these um, other alternatives that are sort of get less airtime, time, but, um, but I think still count. So restrictions to your activities, like placing you on house arrest, um, imposing fees and fines, maybe some sort of social punishments, like imposing disesteem, being required to make public apologies, being required to take steps to make up for the harmful or unjust outcome, um, uh, undertaking community service, which I'll talk about a bit more as the talk goes on, um, and then making s- sorts of expressions of remorse, uh, like undertaking charitable uh, activities or charitable donations. And I think almost all these cross over to the group, although I'm going to raise um, some complications in a bit. So we can't... Uh, electric chair... <laughs> Sorry, I don't know where my words are going. We can't put in an electric chair or otherwise give the death sentence to groups, but you can dissolve their legal status. I think that's kind of the metaphysical equivalent of, um, uh, of killing them off. You can also prevent them from meeting one another, so you can use other sorts of legal tools like trespass notices to make it the case that they cannot come together physically, so you get an effective correlate of something like um, restrictions to liberty or dissolution, and then all the others are the same. Um, except this one I've slightly altered in terms of disesteem, this is just because uh, I ended up cutting it because I don't, I don't think I have enough time. But in the background, I'm assuming a kind of expressive rationale for collective punishment, in particular, um, that, it acts, that it's an act by the state that denounces certain sorts of actions that contravene our social norms. And then uh, it's important that the statement of disesteem or the alienation is done by the authority figure, like the state. So there can be a public statement of disesteem by the state about that. Gang, that company, um, uh, whatever the group is that we're that we're talking about. Okay, so this is just so you know what kind of things I have in mind, and you're not just like, why does she keep saying punishment? And I have no no idea what she means. Okay, good. So on to the distribution. So I think there are two main kinds of collective. Um, and these are egalitarian groups and hierarchical groups. So um, this is just a a bad, I think, representation of an an egalitarian group because it actually does have people with special titles. Just ignore this and pretend um, these are all people that relate to one another on an equal footing. This is going to be groups like um, the kinds of groups that are founded on shared interests, so people who want to get together... Uh, to play sport or to read philosophy papers or literature, um, who want to get together to protest against some perceived injustice that they're really incensed by, and so on. So they have some sort of shared, uh, shared interests in common. The second kind of group is hierarchical groups, and these are a lot more complicated. So for two reasons, I mean, one is just that the relations are different. These people will tend to you know, have a roughly equal say in decision making, for example. They might even decide what to do by consensus. These kinds of groups are top down. So there's going to be a sort of command um, authority structure. Worse in groups like the army, less so in cases like government departments, but still to a, um, to a large degree. And what also complicates these kinds of groups, <laughs> is that there can be nested agency within the collective agent, which again makes it more complicated to think about how to deal with um, culpability and punishment. (coughs) So it's not just, so on my model there's like the whole state and it's made up of different departments, (coughs) then there's each division of the department, that might be a collective agent in its own right, again depending which theory we're using, (coughs) and then there might be each of these small um, subdivisions, which again, if it meets the conditions, could be a collective agent in its own right. So it's a really complicated structure of nested agency um, and hierarchy. And I think because my question is only what's wrong with collective <coughs> punishment, as in is it in principle permissible, and then if so, like when and um, how far does that go, I can set this harder case aside and just focus on the best case. I think this is the best, easiest case, and there are lots of these kinds of groups. There are interesting complications that I'm gonna talk about um, a bit soon. But I'm not just, um, I mean, I am here, but I'm not just in my whole work throwing this case away. So um, I have a a book manuscript and in that, there's a chapter on culpability in hierarchical groups. So there's a separate proposal that I'm gonna defend here for dealing with these kinds of groups. So if you're really interested, send me an email and I'll send it along, (coughs) I'm not sure you're not. Okay. So, um, good, so so in case it isn't clear, I think that the the gang that we're talking about um, is a roughly egalitarian group, uh, and so we can keep um, keep talking about it here. Now, going back to the list of punishments, um, I think, as I've said already, Uh, The first of these is just going to be inapplicable in the case of the group we have in mind. Um, It's not a legally incorporated agent. And that's true even if it has exactly the same structure. So even if the ways that members relate to each other is exactly the same as the way that members relate to each other for legally incorporated groups, um, there's going to be this difference. Just that you can punish the group in the way of dissolving its status um, when it's legally incorporated and otherwise you can't. But as I said already, there's other ways to achieve a similar end, like issuing trespass notices to all members so they can't meet up, so effectively (coughs) making it the case um, that members of the group can't get together. (coughs) Notice that one thing that's missing from this list is is jail time, and I'm going to talk a bit more about that um, as I go on, but just in case I forget. The main rationale for not putting jail time on there, of course, is that I think it requires embodiment and collective agents are not embodied in the right way. But the, um, the complication, I think, is that uh, it would be okay if you could use jail time to punish members in their role as members of the group and not outside their roles. And the worry about jail is that it's comprehensive. So you put someone in jail for some number of years... That's not just their like eight hours a day when they would have been working at Vodafone. That's like their, their whole life. So it, there's this interesting possibility, which is like if there was a way to part-time role-based jail someone, that would actually be back on the table. Um, I'm just not sure how, exactly how, how to work that out. So for now, it's off the list. I'm kind of open to talking about whether it should be back on the list um, or not. But for now, I'm assuming not. Okay, good. So this raises what I think is the big question, which is um, what is the permissible distribution of collective punishment? So you have a group like the gang, the gang is culpable for a murder, we want to punish the group um, for the murder, and then the question is whether we can, and if so, in what way, pass on. Uh, distribution of that punishment to the members of the group. Um, good. Uh, actually, let me get this. Just ignore the words, but, but um, ignore the words because I'm not going to get time sure to talk about that, but just um, we have the, the diagram up. So I'm assuming these are the five um, members of the gang that stand in certain relations to one another um, in, a, in an incorporated group it's just going to look more like this. So there might be like the director role or the lieutenant role or whatever else and those roles are going to stand in certain relations to one another and they're going to be filled by particular individuals at a time, but not necessarily. Um, whereas I think in the gang case that we're talking about, um, it's an open question and I'm going to deal with it more, but I think it, it's potentially the case that um, the roles just are these people. So it couldn't have... It's not easily the case that it would have been the same group if someone else hadn't been been occupying one of these roles. But um, see if I can convince you on that. Okay, sorry. So the proposal is, in an egalitarian group like this, um, the ideal distribution of collective punishment, so what it takes to punish the group, um, is going to be egalitarian itself for the reason that an egalitarian distribution respects the fact that it's often, if not always, arbitrary who ends up doing what job. So imagine, um, I mean, again, in the case we actually had, imagine that they're all, their modus operandi is just to go out and do racist hate crime, and it just turns out you carry the bat this time. I don't know, because the other one went to pee just before you left, whatever. We do a burglary, and it's kind of up for grabs who's the lookout. That's the easy job. Um, You have to carry the gun, right? So, the thought is that in the egalitarian group, it's sort of um, it's a matter of luck who ends up doing what job. It's multiply realizable which of the members would have taken which job um, in order to realize the group's goals. And that makes it uniquely appropriate to have an egalitarian equal distribution um, of the group's punishment across members. So imagine if what we want to do is take 10,000 hours of community service as the appropriate punishment for the gang for its murder. Um, What that's going to mean is the way that we distribute that punishment to the group itself is to give 2,000 hours of community service per member. This, as you may be anticipating, (laughs) opens up to objections, one of which you are not going to like my answer to. Um, Okay. This is, uh, well, uh, let's see. So this is the objection. The objection is that um, changes in membership are going to seem to really change how the distribution looks, um, and and that's gonna seem really unintuitive. So I've just said the right way to punish this egalitarian group is to impose 10,000 hours of community service on it, and if we go for an egalitarian distribution of that punishment, of what it takes to punish the group, is to give 2,000 hours per person, what do we do when somebody leaves or somebody joins? So um, this is you're going at T1, and this, sorry, there should be another, uh, another dot, um, is you're going at T2 and T3, let's say. So in the one case, um, it's the four, but this person leaves, so you just have the four. Then what are you supposed to do? Redistribute the punishment equally again between them. So they first got 2,000 hours each, now that guy left, now we better redistribute his share, because it still has to be the case that the collective gets 10,000 hours. That's what we're trying to achieve here. Collective punishment of 10,000 hours. So suddenly they get 2,500 hours community service each, which is more than a year um, of full time work, I think, if I do my math. Okay. okay, what if the group stays the same, but they get a new person? Um, then, again, is the, should the punishment be redistributed? And now it turns out that they all get something like 1,600, a little over 1,600 hours community service each. And that's the case even though this person had nothing to do with the group at the time that they did their crime, whatever the crime was. And this person did have something to do with the group when they did their crime and now just walks away from a share of the punishment um, by quitting the group. I think this objection actually helps to bring out an important difference between two different kinds of groups, um, which I've kind of hinted at already. So I think some groups have their members contingently, and some groups have their members necessarily. So um, I think Brangelina has its members necessarily if, I don't even know if they're still together, this might be like a 1990 stroke, so (laughs) imagine. Imagine they were still together, and hopefully you all knew who they were. (laughs) And then Angelina, Jolie, gets another partner who's not Brad Pitt. Then it's not that it's still Brangelina, um, just with a new guy, Tom, right? (laughs) It's just that that Brangelina has these two members, and it has them necessarily. If there's not both of those, then there's no group. And I think that's probably true of quite a few non-incorporated groups. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, the, e- the easier cases is all the groups that look more like this. So I think all formally incorporated groups, all groups that count as legal persons, companies, corporations, some sports teams, um, some tribal groups and so on, they are more like this structure And then I think it's actually not a problem at all to think that um, members can quit their way out of a distribution and join their way into a distribution. And this is for the reason that I've talked about already to do with roles. So what does it take to punish Vodafone, give Vodafone community service? It's to have Vodafone send out its employees on time that it's paying for um, and have them perform community service. And then I think it's perfectly okay. If some of the people that were there at the time, that they will say a corporate manslaughter have left and other people have joined. So long as the performance is happening in the work role on the Vodafone (laughs) payroll time, um, then I think that's perfectly acceptable. Um, It maybe helps to remember that this isn't necessarily the only way to punish. So uh, Philip Pettit has a discussion about inactive responsibility which I think can be helpful here. So you might still want to say stories about the group aside, there's something individually culpable about being the kind of person who would join a racist hate crime group um, or who would take up a performance of an action necessary to further such a group's ends. So you can have a separate story about complicity in those kinds of groups or being a member of and furthering the ends of certain sorts of groups. But that means If this group, the gang of white youths that we're talking about, has its members contingently, then it is the case that someone, David Norris for example, could quit the group and another person could join um, and what it would take for them to fulfill their 10,000 hours just is for them to distribute it among the remaining members. And I think the reason why that's Seems unacceptable to us in this case is that it's probably the case, it's probably a case of a group that has its members necessarily. So this group is more like Brangelina and less like Vodafone. And then I just haven't quite figured out what we're allowed to say um, in light of that. So I think you want to say that means that anyone new joining the group, um, anyone new joining the group just makes it a new group and anyone leaving the group just makes it a new group, so the group necessarily is those five. But I'm not sure um, whether that p- entitles us to say that you can punish it forever, even when it's disbanded. That, that's the thing that I'm just, I'm not, qu- I haven't quite figured out yet what you're sort of allowed to say there. Have a group that performed a crime at a time has necessarily those members, does this fact of necessity at a particular time, even if it doesn't exist anymore, entitle us to punish those five taken together? And it's still going to satisfy that structure so long as it's the five together um, and that's what it takes to punish the group. But um, yeah, that's just a sort of flag that um, that's kind of what it would be nice to be able to say. I'm not yet uh, certain if I'm, if I'm able to say that. Okay. The second objection um, has to do with passing on costs to members. So you might object to this story about the egalitarian distribution um, that there's still a difference between imposing $10,000 community service on the group and then this further step of imposing a distributed punishment of 2,000 hours on each member of the group. So you might want to admit that the 10,000 hours punishes the group for what the group did, but the 2,000 goes a step too far and punishes an individual for what the group has done. And that's the pejorative sense of collective punishment that we started off with. So some people in the pretty small, I'm just going to go ahead and call it the literature, Um, Some people in the literature have objected that that's a reason for not punishing collectives at all. So Thomas Smith has this argument um, in a 2009 paper um, that collective punishment is impermissible because it always requires passing on costs to members. And Avia Pasternak has an interesting discussion in which she argues that we can think of impacts on members as a kind of side effect. So she's saying, Um, You punish the group, but it has this sort of side effect of um, being costly for members. Um, And that's permissible, so she talks about the analogy of sending, say, a father to prison, even though it might have serious negative effects on the the wife and children, let's say. We would still think it's permissible to to impose that punishment, even though it has these costs, um, because we can think of those as negative side effects. Um, rather than part of the punishment itself. But I actually don't want to go that way, because I don't think it's a mere side effect. And again, this goes back to the the way of understanding the group in this network sense. It's not that there's this thing, the group, and we punish it, and then unfortunately, as a side effect, there's an impact on members. It's that this structure instantiated in this way with the relations between the members is what the group is and punishing them in this distributed way is what it takes to punish the group. So it's actually it's a stronger claim, it's not a side effect, it is how to punish the group. And we can tell different stories, so our um, talks in her paper about um, whether you want the distribution to be in proportion to causal contribution, then you're going to have something roughly equivalent to the individualist story although you can't solve culpability gaps. Um, or you could randomise. You roll a dice and you see who the unlucky person is who gets the whole punishment of the group, right? Um, so this is just a particular way of telling that story that I think is fairer to the luck involved um, in who takes which role. Okay, and then this is just a place to come back to the jail thought, I think. Um, So again, you might wonder that community service is kind of an an easy case. So if you take something like Vodafone, you work there 7.5 hours a day, Monday to Friday, and then what it takes to punish that corporate agent is to punish you, so long as you choose to remain an employee by sending you out for community service just during those hours and while Vodafone is paying you. There's a really clear demarcation there between you, the private person, and then you in your role at work. And I think what's really interesting is that that story is just much harder to tell in the case of groups with necessary, with, who have their members necessarily. So in something like the, this network, um, it's not that you can't, it's just that it's unclear exactly how to. It's not like they think of their role in the racist group in a sort of five hours a day way. And then it's just a bit hard to know exactly like how much of their whole selves we're allowed to punish and I think there are going to be groups that have their members necessarily where group membership is so bound up with people's identities that you almost get to like a full-time status and that's why I think maybe the jail stuff should be back on the table in at least some cases because if it's like really that's my ho- I'm not just wearing my gang hat it's like that's my whole head or whatever um so yeah that's just to say the Maybe there's a case for the jail story in the sorts of groups that have their members necessarily and where their identity is kind of more or less all-consuming. And in the cases where we can clearly separate it out to five hours a day or whatever, the two hours swing dancing in the evenings and that's an evil criminal group, then you make sure you punish them in in a way that doesn't extend beyond that. Okay. Cool. Just um, one more thing that I wanted to talk about, which is the uh, joint enterprise stuff, law. And then we're done. (coughs) So there's three kinds of case that end up... um, falling under the umbrella of joint enterprise law in the UK, and then to, um, to a slightly different extent in Australia and the US and wherever else I haven't yet managed to read about. And these are the three kinds of case. So the first one, I think, is the most um, straightforward, or, um, yeah, see what you think, but I think the most straightforward. This is a case where um, several different people intend to commit the same crime, and then they commit it together. And in this kind of case, um, let's say it's a murder. So that several different people want to commit a murder, and then instead of committing it alone, they like team up and help each other. Each of them can be sentenced to the full extent of murder. And this is kind of interesting because it looks like you have a strange sort of an overgeneration of culpability if you're concerned with outcomes, because you just had the one murder. Right, But now you're having five people, say, in the group, all go to jail for murder because they participated um, uh, together in this crime. So that's the first kind of case. The second kind of case um, involves there being some sort of principal or leader in the group who commits a crime, and then others in the group facilitate or assist or encourage that, uh, that crime to go ahead. And again, in that kind of case... Um, so long as certain conditions are met to do with what you intended, what you knew, what you foresaw, the encouragers can be also um, held to be culpable to the same degree as the principal wrongdoer. So a lot of this gets discussed um, in the in complicity Law. And in the most controversial case, I think, which is the case that um, is featured in the film Common that I talked to you about at the start, is the case where several people agree to commit one crime, so leave John Joe out of it now, but say the rest of the group, um, they want to go beat this guy up in the pizza parlour because he's wronged them in some way or other, Um, and then the... What is the word for? Like the unpredictable... There's a better word, but anyway, the unpredictable guy that's just secretly slipped a knife into his jeans and you never know when he's going to just stab someone, that guy stabbed someone during the beating up. And then you're supposed to think everyone in the group, so long as they merely knew that that was an unpredictable kind of person and that could happen, or even was carrying a weapon and that could happen, can all also end up being on the hook for that crime that happened during the commission of the first crime. And and again, this, I think, is the kind of case that gets the most attention and is the most controversial in terms of um, uh, joint enterprise, in terms of holding people responsible for what others in their group have done. And the question that I'm interested in is whether we should think that this is a form of collective punishment. So do we actually have one um, in the law in these countries or, or not? So I think that and it, like, at first it might appear that these provisions actually are collectivist. So they're, um, you, know, you can think about what the, the, the gang did in the case we've been working with or what the group did in common, if you've seen it and then think, you know, these people are being punished um, for the outcomes uh, of what the group has done. The group has done a murder, it's done a burglary, and so on, and all these people are going to jail for those very serious crimes. Um, but I think, actually, if you look more carefully at how the sentencing goes, they're actually individualists, and they're individualist in a super weird way that just maxes out how bad it is to be involved in doing something as a group, and then just really radically punishes people for... For being involved in group um, in group crime in group crime as individuals. So I don't think it actually is a punishment of the group. So each person is assessed individually for what she knew, intended, foresaw, um, how she insisted or, or encouraged the principal's crime in the middle case, um, or what she knew about the, the unpredictable rogue person in the third kind of case. Notice she can be punished with jail time. So in the movie, lots of cases that have been in the press, um, people are held to be accountable for the full extent of the crime, and then they end up in jail for that crime. So you go to jail for murder, let's say. Um, And unless it's one of these groups I've been talking about, and they have a super sophisticated theory of collective punishment behind what they're doing, I think they're not throwing these people in jail as a collective punishment that legitimately infringes on all of their personal time. Um, So I think actually the best way to read this is that it's a punishment of an individual expressing that it's just so bad to be an individual who participates in a group crime. And you have to have this weird story of maxing out the punishment. So you're really saying it's so bad to have assisted or encouraged, or in the case we've been working with, yelled racist abuse as part of a group that perpetrated a murder that you're on the hook for a sentence just as dramatic as the person who did the stabbing. So I think that leaves open that we should be interested in um, at least starting to talk about an explicitly collectivist punishment um, uh, in the law. So there is something in the UK which is corporate manslaughter, which does actually punish the corporation for its wrongdoing when it results in death, falls under the the law of negligence. But it's very particular. It can only be committed by people senior in the organisation, Um, And then only certain sorts of punishments, like fines in particular, there's a heavy emphasis on, um, can be justified. Um, Yeah, good. So apart from this, the thought is that um, if the law had a better way of resolving the culpability gap, then it wouldn't need to just max out on individual punishment in the way that I've just been describing. Uh, it could punish the group for its collective wrongdoing, so it could punish the group of five youths for having murdered, distribute that punishment between them um, in the way that's appropriate, in the egalitarian way, which I've argued is the most appropriate. Um, and then if it needed to, if there's some sort of residue, it can also punish individuals for how bad it has been to join or be involved in uh, being complicit in furthering the ends of a group like that. Okay, I'll leave it there.